Welcome to Pouring Over Pages, a podcast of words and wine. I'm Alexa. And I'm Maritza. And we're getting lit on literature today. <laughs> <laughs> I just like interchange the, the, the catchphrases. I know. I love it. It's I a love good, it. It puts uh, me in a good mood. Yeah. It really does after the song and dance here. It's yeah. <laughs> it's, it starts me off like in the right in the right mindset, especially considering that we're going to be touching on some pretty heavy topics today. Yes. So I should start off in a good mood. So that our listeners can feel my rapid decline. <laughs> it will be quite sudden. Everyone yeah, will <laughs> everyone, everyone will know. Everyone will feel it. Well, welcome back, everybody. We are really excited to share the next book. We read Party of Two by Jasmine Guillory. And I think, I think it was only a matter of time until we chose a book by Jasmine Guillory. She is in many ways one of the queens of of romance novels. She's published a lot of books and Party of Two spoke to us because it has a little bit of a more of a political mm-hmm. connection as we'll dive into. So this is a romance novel, but it's not light, yeah. I would say. It really touches on issues or at least sparks conversation about issues that I think are really, really important for us to discuss and for people in this country to be discussing actively you know, for us to not forget some of the horrors that that ha- that are happening in our prison system. So we'll we'll get into that, but it's a great way, I think, to bring yourself into the topic because the book itself is light and fun, but it does touch on these things. I just think it was a good balance. Yeah, it's definitely a good balance. Um, the romance is perfect for Valentine's Day. Um, this book fits very well with Black History Month. We always like showcasing diversity here. So I think it it checks off a lot of boxes for, yeah. for now. Yeah, the main character, Olivia, she is Black and she is a lawyer. And so she has encountered a lot of racism mm-hmm. and a lot of struggle to to prove herself even in the, in these large firms, even though she became partner, right? They, yeah. The, the older white men would still yell at her and treat her as lesser right so it definitely dives into topics like that and the author herself i also want to point out she's a black author who's been writing romance novels and romance i would you know sadly i have to admit you know a lot of romance novels are written by white women Mm -hmm. and and so it's great to see her voice shine through because her books tend to have a, a sharp wit to them yeah that bring forth issues of race and that that just does it in a really intelligent all-encompassing way without losing that that fun energy that you get from a romance novel you know it's mm-hmm. just it's just as i said at the beginning it's like just the right balance i it think the way she does it it was perfect no i i loved um the way she wrote the characters the back and forth the fun banters they had she's a really great writer and i'm glad we we chose this book for this month yeah definitely and so as a as a very quick summary what i'll say about the main character olivia is as we've mentioned she's a she's an attorney she moves to la finally after many years of thinking about it she's originally from the bay area she moves there with her best friend ellie who was also uh, who's also a lawyer, and you know they wanted to create something together. They wanted to bring their their strengths together and create something really really wonderful, a boutique firm that could do a lot of good work. And so she moves to L.A. and I think on her like first night there <laughs> yeah. or something, she's she's at, she's at a hotel bar because she does you know hasn't moved into her apartment yet, and she meets this like really funny nice good-looking white guy sitting yeah. at the bar and they start talking about Super cake. unassuming, yeah. Really unassuming. He's wearing like a baseball cap. Like he just seems like a kind of average Joe kind of guy. And it turns out that he's the junior senator from California, Max Powell. Hmm. 
I swear to God, like, if that doesn't happen to me, like, I'm going to be pissed. <laughs> I know. I was like, Olivia needs to trade places with Maritza. Like, I deserve this is a totally senator. totally her vibe. Like, I this deserve is, this. This is her fairy tale. <laughs> <laughs> if John Ossoff weren't married, this would be my, right? this would be my, the, my fairy tale. At the bar, sure. you would bond over um, bacon and yes, cheeseburgers and instead cheeseburgers. of cake and pastries like yes, they do. <laughs> yes, I prefer the savory. I do. So it's just a really cool, like, meet cute, I think, at yeah. the beginning of the book. It's just, it's very, very chill, very unassuming. And so it turns out she recognizes him on TV when she gets upstairs. She turns on the TV and she's like, oh, shit, <laughs> I was just having a drink with <laughs> Senator Max Powell. And it turns out, of course, as as you can all imagine, that, you know, they start their relationship, they decide to get serious, but with that comes the scrutiny of the press. Mm-hmm. And so she struggles a lot coming you know coming out into the world as his girlfriend because she knows that she's going to be treated differently described differently scrutinized differently than say if he were a white man dating a white woman a a more respectable (laughs) uh you know and i say that with with air quotes as a podcast no one can see me being sassy with my hands (laughs) but that's really what she faces and so the story is about the two of them trying to find that balance and he is someone who's trying to i would argue he's trying to do good in his position he was a prosecutor and felt that eventually he woke up and knew that he was part of the problem that he was putting kids in jail kids who didn't you know deserve to be there kids who had already gone enough and and there's a there's a really great great quote where he says, I was a prosecutor first, and that's when I really saw how much pain and sorrow there is out there in the world. And I got really sick and tired of putting people in prison, people who didn't deserve it or who had gone through so much in their lives already. So that's really, I think, one of the things that we'll focus on today is discussing some of the the issues that come up with this book about prison reform, the prison industrial complex. And the, uh, you know, a judicial system that quite frankly, uh, you know, was built to protect the interests of the wealthy and of the white. So yeah. we're going to dive into some of those issues. And before we do, Alexa, give us a, give us a little, a little taste of the wine that, that I'm going to need to be drinking considering, <laughs> considering what we're talking about today. Yeah. This is the lighter part of the, the discussions at hand. Um, for this episode, I chose um, La Fête du Rosé. Um, it's a rosé from Provence, and it's a Black-founded um, winery uh, by Donné Burston. And we'll get more into the details, but I just thought it was perfect for Valentine's Day because I prefer rosés to roses. And, you know, the Black-owned founder um, tie-in there. And, and he has an incredible story, so I'm happy to tell it later on. Perfect. So I'm super excited to be drinking this because it is absolutely delicious. Yay! And I, I love rosé. Uh, it's it's It just feels like I can drink it at any time. Yeah, exactly. Especially down here. I, I'm not one of those people that reserves rosé just for summer. I'm a rosé all day kind of oh, gal. Oh, absolutely. So. I agree. I agree. <laughs> so let's see. I I have a couple topics that I want to that I want to chat with you about and I figured maybe we start off with some of the the things that made this book charming, endearing and important. And one of them is female friendship mm-hmm. and and encouraging the women in your life to prioritize themselves and to rest. That was a huge, huge, huge part of the book. I didn't really see that coming. I appreciated that that was peppered in throughout. And I would say that that really stems primarily from 
Olivia's friendship with Ellie. Yeah. Right? Whenever they're having some sort of issue and whenever Olivia was having a hard time figuring out what to do uh, <laughs> in, in, in these situations, Ellie was very much the person to remind her that it was important for her to to rest, mm-hmm. to take her time. And she even says, our firm is not the most important thing here. Our firm is not a person. You and I are what matter. And I and I really like that message, and I'm glad that it was such a strong message in the book because they're starting from scratch, right? They're creating yeah. this firm. They they don't really have any customers yet, uh, you know, clients yet. They're not they're not up and running, busy yet, yeah. right? And yet, the priority was still making sure that they were okay. That this that this firm failing or succeeding was going to be a result of how well they treated themselves first and foremost. So I really. I liked their friendship. I found that to be a really, really refreshing part of the book. Yeah. I really appreciated that, especially from, you know, both of them quitting their their high-stress attorney jobs right. and, and leaving, you know, very solid incomes, very solid positions to, to build something that was theirs because they didn't want another white man boss to be telling them what they can and cannot do, not answering, you know, to the powers that be. So I thought it was great that messaging because you know when you're trying to get something up and running you're straight up on hustle mode you're like grinding not resting so i i felt that that was important and very much a product of the work that they can create and the relationships that they can build if they just give themselves the time to rest and and recharge so yeah and there's just always something really empowering to me when i read stories about women who leave toxic situations behind, Mm -hmm. not only because that in and of itself is important, but that they go and they make a better, healthier space somewhere else. And that invites other people to come into a healthy, better space. You know, I, that to me is always such an empowering thing because it's hard enough to leave a toxic situation. I think it's just as hard to start something and, and try and create a good, energy in that place so that other people can feel comfortable and confident there and that's that's what they created out of scratch and and i'm glad that it was such a focus in the book on on page 80 it says it made them a good pair especially since neither of them judged the other for her schedule yeah and i definitely want to dive into that considering that we're living in this covid post covid world where a lot of people are still working remotely we're still working remotely and that sentence to me takes on a whole new context because of the world that we're living in and it describes olivia someone who was there like you know not super early in the morning right like she would kind of stroll in at like 11 and like answer her emails and do her thing whereas ellie was there really early in the morning because she was you know taking her kid to school and, and all that so i really liked that because that's that's a humane way of Mm -hmm. working. That's a humane way of, of just treating your employees. You know, I'm, I'm eternally grateful for the fact that I get to work from home because I think it's given me a much better balance in my life. It's allowed for me to be a human as well as an employee and not just an employee. Like work is not my life, right? We've talked about that. Like work is not your life. And I just love that this book, even though it's from a couple years ago, it takes on a really, really, really great tone in this atmosphere, in this moment. Definitely. Before, you know, COVID and the work environment shifted, traditional environments got a bit more flexible and stuff. Sometimes you just feel like a robot by the end of the day. You're just plugging in 
doing your shit, staying there. It doesn't matter how much work you get done. As long as you're there, you're physically right. in the space, and then you leave and you just feel drained and you're not ready to human now. <laughs> so I'm glad that they were really respective of um, each other's space and promoted that healthy lifestyle. And that was a really great contrast. We'll, we'll move on to Max because oh his, <laughs> his life, right? He's a senator, so he's in... He's in D.C. and he only flies back to California on the weekends. He's surrounded by staff like 24 hours a day. He's constantly working, going to events, town halls, having conversations, you know, surrounded by staff that can tell him like, oh, that person over there is. It reminds me of that yeah. scene in The Devil Wears Prada. Yes, with the big notebook, with the yeah, binder. She's, <laughs> she's got to point out who that person is because if not, Miranda Priestly won't know how to greet them. It reminded me of that. But like their their jobs are right. They're so different. So right? vastly so, different. So vastly different. And and I, I appreciated him as a character. I mm-hmm. liked him a lot as a character. I found certain elements of him to be annoying which I enjoyed because yeah. it made him more real. You know, when you create a when you create these these dudes in these novels and they're like cookie cutter Prince perfect, charming. it's just such crap <laughs> because it's it's not real. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? I mean, like I, I I don't even think I can hang on to a book no. like if if that's the description. And he's he was a person who made decisions in a really kind of brash way, very quickly. Didn't really think things through, and that became a highlight of how that's also a behavior attached to certain levels of privilege in the book. Mm-hmm. Because Olivia is very clear and methodical and she doesn't take any decision lightly. No. But it's because she knows that she's not afforded some of the same benefit of the doubt, some of the same luxuries that say Max is because he's a white man, senator, a person in power, and she is a black woman. And so she doesn't have the luxury to just make brash decisions that's more risky for her. Yeah, she has to calculate every single thing she does and says, whereas Max could just like flip a switch and say literally anything and it probably wouldn't be taken as as heavily as if she would. Right, and she says that. She says, I'm a black woman. I don't ever get the benefit of the doubt in the way someone like you does. That's just true. Yeah. That's just true. And, and I appreciate that that was such a main theme in the book. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's why the author made their personality so different because you saw just how much he could get away with things that she could not get away with. No. Never. And that's rough. Super. <laughs> I think. I mean, I, that would drive that me That would drive me nuts. insane, especially because he just jumps in at these events and says whatever. Like, I felt like he barely even had talking points half the time. No, he was he's just, just very charming. off the cough. Yeah, cough, charming. Yeah, it's, it's, it just makes me want to slap him across so, the face. And he's also from Beverly Hills, so right that adds that other right exactly. <laughs> so like these two people are such a contrast, right? Like I I really appreciated the moment where Olivia says men always have this vision in their head of who they think I am, and what they want me to be, and why they want to date me, and then they get to know me better and decide I'm too loud or too intimidating, or too ambitious. Hmm. That's one of my favorite quotes in the whole book. It's such a good one. Because I think a lot of women feel that way. Yeah. So many women feel that way. That, you know, initially what they like about you is the very surface stuff. And then when they realize that you're actually not a blow-up doll, it becomes this, like, (laughs) nightmare for them. Like, oh my god, she has a brain. She has opinions. Oh my god, she has opinions. (gasps) That's horrible. How could I? How could I? Exactly. Like, I can't like her. She's, she talks. It sounds like trash. And, it, and I just, like, 
that resonated with me because I think that we get told so often to not be loud, to be less. was like, you know, if what you want is less, then go find less. Yeah, there's plenty of less there's out there. There's plenty of less. But don't, don't try and make women smaller. This idea of self-surveillance is something that we talked about way back in episode one and how sometimes the way that we surveil ourselves and each other, women especially, that's how we keep ourselves small. And that's one of the greatest tools that society has is teaching us to police ourselves, right? So I thought that that was really, really, really fascinating how how the author was able to to talk about that, to juggle that in yeah. the midst of, of other characters that were so different, especially personality-wise. But with Max, you know, this is someone who's, I would say not you know there's no self-surveillance at all when it comes to Max he's the complete opposite of her he's just leaning so heavily on his charm and leaning so heavily on his his ability to connect with people Mm -hmm. in person and shake their hand and and have them feel like this is the only person that Max is speaking to right like he's just he's he's really got that great way with that oh yeah yeah oh yeah the politician kind of smile and grin and and getting everyone's name and he's very charismatic and every event he goes to you could just see so many examples of that yeah exactly and he as you mentioned is from beverly hills right he has this this privilege (laughs) that just makes me think of the show yeah And very early on, we get to know him on a more personal level. So pretty early in the book on page 72, he says, I realized that I was, that it was all a waste unless I used my abilities and my privilege to help other people. That automatically for me made him quite endearing. Yeah. Right. And, and, and so I cut him more slack as the book went on when he was a little brash and a little quick to make decisions and, and would get frustrated when Olivia needed to take more time to make decisions. Mm Mm-hmm. But I felt that that was really what was most important to him, right? Is is using his privilege, using his skill, using his ability to try and make life better for other people. And that's why I, I would like to believe. That's why people go into politics. Not everybody. Yeah. Not everybody. No. I'm, I'm not, I'm not We're that not generalizing stupid. Like that. <laughs> not that stupid, really. But, but a lot of people go into politics because they feel that they can do good things in those positions. And then, of course, once you're in there, one of two things happens. You become frustrated because you end up playing politics as opposed to actually making real change, and you leave. Or you join in, and one day you look at yourself and you realize that you're not there for the reasons that you probably started off with, right? You become the villain. You become the villain. (laughs) What's that quote? Am I going to quote Spider-Man again? again. Oh my God, no, I can't do it. I I refuse. This is not a (laughs) Spider-Man podcast. You either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. <laughs> Pouring over Spider-Man. That's, that's politics, honestly. That no, quote is, describes politics. Who knew it would be so applicable to so many things oh, man, that we Sp- talk Spider-Man about? Spider-Man is really, yeah, it's it's a big part of this podcast. <laughs> but it's, it's just, it's so sad to know that that's... Those are really the only two options that you have. You either play along and you become something else and you get tied up in other things yeah. or you get out of it because it's it's bad it's for sickening. you. Right. It's you know, bad Knowing for you. that you cannot make any of the changes you wish to see in the world. Right. And that's 
Like, I can't imagine that. I can't imagine feeling that level of frustration. I can't imagine feeling, yeah, like that just sounds so horrible to me. And, and he started off as a prosecutor, as we mentioned, and he says that job made me wake up a few years in of seeing, you know, all the hard situations kids lived in. Basically, it opened his eyes to realize that this is way too much to put on a particular person, putting them in prison when they've already experienced so much. And that's why he didn't want to be that kind of prosecutor anymore. The prosecutor who just put people in prison. Which and is very easy to do. Which is which is what the system is actually designed <laughs> yeah. to do. Uh, you know, it's 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 terrifying. But the truth is this if you if you have the audacity, the audacity to say that you would like to go to trial, <laughs> then you put yourself in a position where you can get punished far more yeah right because how dare you how dare you just not take the plea deal and go exactly and i think something something like over 90 percent of cases end up just being resolved quote unquote through plea deals because if everyone were to ask for a trial the system would collapse pretty much in its entirety because we just don't have that capacity and one of the things that we did in preparation for this podcast is we did a lot of research. Um, this is something that we've been passionate about for a long time. We've talked about for a long time. And we also watched a really, really great film called 13th, which is on Netflix. It's from 2016. And it's really about how slavery was never really abolished Mm-mm. so much as redefined. It was remarketed. <laughs> yeah, that's that's essentially what it was. And that's the part that they don't teach you in school, right? They teach you that the 13th Amendment was the amendment that, you know, abolished slavery. But there's a clause in there. There's a clause in there that a lot of people don't know, Mm -hmm. is that no person can be held as a slave against their will, with the exception of criminals. Mm -hmm. And now what we have is a country that has learned to profit off of criminals, off of their labor, And of course, prisons themselves have become a huge source of profit. So I walked into this situation today, this recording today, frustrated and angry because we don't talk about this enough. No, I had no idea about it. I mean, I had seen some documentaries and stuff about how, you know, obviously the the whole system is corrupt and systemically racist, but I had no clue about all that loophole in particular. I I had no clue about all of the the reform and the bills in the 70s, 80s, and 90s that made this even more possible and more solidified. I mean, the U.S. has the highest incarceration rate in the whole world. Yep. In the whole world. We don't even have the biggest population in the world. We are are 5% of the world's population, but we have 25% of the world's prisoners right here. It's insane. It's unethical. It's wrong. And one of the things that I really want to focus on, and I know that we've talked about this before, but I will never stop preaching it, is that what what, what you see on the news with police brutality and people standing up and, 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 and really trying to make a point of the fact that we live in a time where there are people who are, who are oppressed and, and, and treated brutally by the police, none of that came out of nowhere. None of that is new. And when suddenly 4 million people were freed, 
quote, freed uh, when the 13th Amendment was passed, you suddenly had a whole bunch of people who didn't really know where to go, what to do. Mm -hmm. And you had a terrible economy in the South that was in tatters. And so what they did was they... They created a system to criminalize some of these 4 million black people to bring them right back Hmm. to help improve the economy that was left in tatters after the passing of the 13th Amendment. So these people were slaves and then slaves again. And it was those people, those criminals, in quote, because let me tell you, they were they were charged with things like loitering. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it was the smallest bullshit. things that, yeah. that don't, you know, require slavery. Right. So these criminals are the ones who built back the economy of the South. And so there's always this thing that happens because after that, what you had was a, a hundred years of Jim Crow. Mm-hmm. Right. And then, and then after that, you had the famous war on crime and war on drugs that was coined and started by nixon but reagan really ran with it i mean really just that was really ran with it campaign right there yep that was his campaign and then it forced democrats it forced bill clinton also to move in this sort of centrist position in order to be able to get the southern vote because at that point you couldn't say you know, that you were racist. You couldn't say that you were against black people, but you could say things like states' rights. Yeah. You could say things that were so abstract that they would push in the direction of people feeling like, oh, okay, this this would serve my cause, right? Mm-hmm. And it's so, to me, evil, right? Like, let's talk about what we're really fucking talking about. <laughs> let's not veil it. That's that's cowardly. It's horrible. It's horrible. And the prison industrial complex is not just for-profit prisons or prisons themselves. It also takes into account all the people who are employed by these systems. And it takes into account all of the vendors, right? The people who make the food for the prisons, who provide health care for the prisons, right? Like, it's, it's, there's just too much now. It's too big for it to be dismantled so as i think i think criminal justice reform i think that that's a fantasy yeah because there's too much money in it oh yes there's so much from every places you wouldn't even realize right and that's what scares me because there's always going to be a thing that comes up after you know let's say we do sort of create some sense of reform Let's say we wipe the records clean of everyone who is in prison for a very silly, uh, you know, low possession crime, exactly. you know, a, a nonviolent drug related crime. Like, let's say that we get all these people out. Let's say that we start to wipe the system a little bit clean. Unfortunately, history tells us that they're just going to come up with another clever way to keep black and brown people either imprisoned or on the outskirts without power, without the ability to do what their white neighbors can do. No, and I think it's very evident when we see um, the prison sentencing for crack versus cocaine. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Crack is whack because if you are a low-income black or brown person and you are found with the same amount of crack as a white person with cocaine, you are going to jail for a much, much longer time 
and more terrible time than your counterpart. Exactly, because cocaine in powder form is so, so much more sophisticated. <laughs> it's been wealthy. <laughs> and that and 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 attached to that too is is mandatory minimums. Yes, right? yes. Because mandatory minimums make it so that the judge can no longer exercise discretion. So you have judges who are forced to put people in prison for a hell of a lot longer than maybe that situation you know, was necessary, yeah. right? If, if you're a non-violent drug offender and it's your first offense, you're really going to tell me that a mandatory minimum is somehow applicable to you? It's, it's justice. So, so justice should be, in my opinion, and I know that this is hard to do, but I think that justice should be nuanced in the sense that if judges don't have discretion and the ability to sit there with that awesome responsibility and then being arguably i think the the most uh what's the word the the le the, the least impartial yeah right then how can we possibly have faith in the justice system the same goes with three strikes you're out yes bill clinton's law all these things that were just designed to make sure that people remained in prison because it was incredibly profitable. Super. There's no rehabilitation here. It, it's pretty much keeping people in prison as long right. as you can to profit off of them. It's not enough that they take away your liberty, but they also punish you. Yeah. They punish you heavily. And what I really want people to know and to understand is that crime doesn't come out of nowhere, right? Just as I said, police brutality doesn't come out of nowhere. It is a systemic issue. It has roots. It's it's fed. And so crime tends to happen, of course, in poorer areas where people have less resources, less education, less of an opportunity yeah. to move forward in their life and to change their life. Because in America, what I think is what makes me the most sad is that poverty is criminalized yeah. in America. Here, to be poor is is to be constantly committing crimes in a way, right? Because if you don't pay back your debt or if you're put in a position where you can't fend for yourself, then the system is designed to punish you. Mm -hmm. And so we live in a country where the laws are designed to protect those who have money. And we live in a society and in a just and we have a justice system that treats people who are white and rich and guilty better than those who are poor and black and brown and innocent. Yeah. And that's why I'm pissed. <laughs> so pissed. That's why I'm, I've been in a fucking a bad mood. mood the whole day. <laughs> because in preparation for this episode, I was just thinking to myself, there is so much that people don't know. No. And I don't blame them for not knowing. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not here to shame people for not understanding what's going on. Because... That's on purpose. The reason you don't know is because it's very easy to put people out in a prison in a rural community where you never see them. Yeah. And you don't know how they're treated. You don't know anything. All you think is, well, as long as that person's not in my neighborhood committing mm -hmm. crimes here, then I don't care where they are. Yeah. And it's not a very, you know, it's not a black and white issue. It's very much, there's a lot of gray area. I mean, I know growing up, you know, you're just taught, oh, if you do something bad, you go to jail and, you know, you're arrested, you go to jail. It's because you did a bad thing. But it's so not that way once you dive in and you realize the bad things that people are going to jail for aren't 
bad. It, they're like, really not bad. They're really not bad. Like you're here <laughs> thinking like, oh my God, of course, the murderers, the rapists, the, the, but it's like these poor people who had minor drug possession right. crimes. Right. No different than some rich kid in college with a bag of cocaine exactly. in his pocket. Exactly. Exactly. And they're serving so many years of their life in there and then they get out and then they're ostracized because they were in prison. Right. And they can't get their life back on track. So right. they're perpetually fucked, honestly. Yes, exactly. And 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 I'm glad that you brought up this idea that we have in our heads that, oh, it's it's rapists, it's murderers, yeah. right? Because that is also done on purpose. Mm-hmm. The reason that people imagine violent criminals, you know, especially black males, mm-hmm. black people in general, but black males being violent criminals is because that is how they've been portrayed for a very long time. And we don't even realize how we are part of this kind of sick, twisted rhythm of it all. Because when when I was younger, I mean, we never watched it, but I know that people would like go home and like watch cops at the end yes, of the day. And all you're doing yeah. is seeing is a whole bunch of black kids being thrown in prison for a whole bunch of bullshit. And that became normal. Yeah. That, that became lives normal. in your subconscious forever. Yes. <laughs> And that story is as old, I mean, it's a tale as old as time, because let's talk about really quick, I hate even to like bring it up, but Birth of a Nation, this horrible bullshit film from 1915 that portrayed black men as rapists, criminals. There's this famous scene where the woman prefers to jump off the cliff than be raped by this black savage. And that portrayal hasn't changed. No. I mean, people don't go on TV and do blackface, sure. <laughs> Not now. Not now. <laughs> but in reality, like, that's still how black men especially, it's black men who are portrayed in this horrible, violent lens. Like, they are the rapists. Yes. They are the, you know, they are the criminals that if you see them in your neighborhood, watch out. And that's why you have people, like, George Zimmerman shooting a child who was just walking down the fucking street, minding his own business. And here in Florida, we have such a shitty law called stand your ground (laughs) that he was able to get off. Yeah. So, you know, I, again, and I've said this so many times that people are going to be like, I'm going to stop listening to this podcast because Maritza's starting to say this too much. (laughs) The personal is political. Everything in your life is related to who is elected and who you vote for and how you vote and who was in power before and what laws are enacted and what's not. Mm -hmm. Everything, everything is so interconnected. And I'm so tired of people thinking that it's, that they're somehow above it. Yeah, they're excused from from being political because it doesn't affect them, but... (laughs) It's just, it's horrific. And, and I, and what you brought up with, with Nixon and Reagan is the perfect example. We're still living the Mm -hmm. consequences of the policies that they put forth. I remember dare growing up. I remember. I still, I think I still have the dare t-shirt. I think. I hope not. I am not right. We could, we could write on it. Yeah. But it's like, yeah. No, it all, it all grows on each other. Yeah. No, it all, you know, it just goes down and then of course like you said bill clinton felt pressure so it all it's, it all trickles down it all yes comes back that's the only trickle down that actually exists yeah, exactly is the fact that these policies that get enacted it's not that easy to repeal them no. because what you create is a monster as what as, as as we've seen with, with the prison industrial complex we've created a beast so big that 
it's hard, maybe even impossible to dismantle it. And that's why it's so important for us to remain vigilant and for us to vote, especially yeah. in local elections, because that's where these bills like stand your ground get passed. Exactly. And now we're living, me and you and everyone listening, we're, we're living in a time now where we've yet to see, but we most certainly will see what happens after the Trump administration. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll admit, I'm kind of surprised that my eyes are actually more focused on the erosion of our democracy than some of the other bullshit things that he yeah. was discussing and, and, and doing. I am surprised to see that what turned out to be obviously a horrible and traumatic four years with a horrible. complete sociopathic narcissist the in the White House. social experiment I ever. mean, just the apps, I mean, a, hor- a truly horrific human being. But I am shocked that what we're worried about now is the erosion of democracy. I think yeah. that that's going to be the issue of our generation. Yeah. I do. Because we have people in Congress right now who are willing to watch democracy erode just so that their candidate wins the election, yeah. just so that their so candidate the remains power. on top. Mm-hmm. That's all terrifying. about the power. It's hor- I mean, we're in our 30s. I cannot remember another time in recent history where we were like, what, democracy? Who needs that? Let's let's have this guy run amok in the White House. Like, right. People thought it was going to be like a funny, you know, oh, we need some change. Toss him in there. That's awesome. Let's see what goes. The system will hold. The system is man-made. Yeah. The system is an act. John Lewis, democracy mm. is an act. It's an act. Mm. If we're not a part of it, then it erodes. We have to maintain it. We have to be its gatekeepers. Yeah. And I was so horrified, you know, when when all these all these conversations were happening on the news about the the rigging of the election and all this other complete and utter bullshit. Because the moment that you lose the faith and the trust of your constituents, then everything becomes possible. Yeah. That's terrifying because perception is reality. There are people in this country who genuinely believe that Donald Trump was cheated out of a second term. Yeah. That's terrifying. That's so scary. And they they vote. And they vote. And they vote. (laughs) They vote. So if they're voting, there's no excuse for you who gives a shit not to also be voting. Get your ass to the polls. I will make you a promise right now. Anybody who is not registered to vote and listens to this podcast... I will help you register. Yes. You can literally send us a message on Instagram and we will help you register to vote. Definitely. That is that is so important. In the name of democracy. In the name of democracy. Please. For the love of all things holy, please. Please. That's all this country really has, you yeah. know, that we that we tout all the time, you know, free, land of the free, democracy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, in the land of the free, we've locked up 25% the world of the world's prisoners i mean it's the irony is almost it's it's too sweet it's It's such a great and i and i want to emphasize what we discussed last episode with erica who has such a positive and rightfully so positive view of what is possible in america and she has this kind of renewed hope that i think is important i mean it was even like a friendly reminder to me be less cynical to be less cynical (laughs) but whether you're hopeful or cynical you need to be active Mm -hmm. that's all i ask yeah you know if if being cynical is what moves you to act 
then be cynical. If being hopeful moves you to act, then remain hopeful, but remain in it. Mm -hmm. Just remain active, remain an active participant in our democracy. Remain a Max Powell who can look at himself and say, I have a certain level of privilege and skill. How can I use it to help other people? I don't want to be that kind of prosecutor. I want to help people. And I think that stories and storytelling are one of the most powerful ways to create and generate empathy, understanding, and make us active citizens. Books have the power to do that. They do. They really do. And that's why there are book bans. But I'm not going to go into that rant today uh. because that's that's a whole other rant, isn't it? Oh, that is. That's a whole other problem. We'll probably talk about it in the next episode, guys. I mean, I don't. I don't think we have a choice. We, we definitely will, because one of the books mentioned within our book that we're reading was banned. Was and, a banned book. And yeah. we're, we're we're gonna let Maritza go off. We're gonna pop off on that Ooh, one. I can't. I can't wait to rant on 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 the just completely uncivilized bullshit that is book banning, <laughs> because there's so many different instances in history that I can refer to about how poorly that has. That has turned out to be. I we mean, love history repeating itself. I know. I know. I, guess, I get so frustrated. I just wish everyone loved history as much as I do because it will warm your soul and it will make you realize that there are other options and solutions and yeah. that history doesn't have to repeat itself, that we can actually be on a continuous wheel of progress if we only take the wisdom of the past and use it you know, in, in, in our present to create a better future. Exactly. Oof. That's all I want. That's such a no tough, pressure. Tough pillow to swallow for some. Yeah. No. No pressure. Everybody. Learning from your mistakes. What? What? What is that? <laughs> Go back to episode one, and we'll talk about self reflection, <laughs> self reflection, and self care, and how we can be better tomorrow than we were today. I'll we take need to that. Send that to our our senators, our congressmen. Our- yes. Please. Please reach. That's the homework that I'm giving everybody. Everybody is to know who their representative and their senator is, not only in uh, in Congress but also in their state legislature. So yes. that way we can all make change and we know who's uh, you know who we need to call and uh, leave voice voicemails. <laughs> but I think that that is that's today's moral of the story of Party of Two yeah. is look into what's happening here. Look into the prison industrial complex, look into criminal justice reform, look into it and learn about it because I promise you it's worth your time. And even something like a romance novel can open your eyes to it. No, it'll definitely change your perspective and and open you up to a world that you didn't quite know it existed and existed at this capacity. It was just fuck. It was, it was too much to handle. Exactly. And on that note, (laughs) (laughs) yes, I think it is time for us to get our sip on. So yeah, I need I need this wine. Right so now. cheers to a hopeful future with with prison reform in whatever way that may be. Yeah, I'm doing like a kind of shrug, you know, because eh, who knows? Who knows? But we'll be part of it. We will. Yes. Cheers, cheers. to that. Yay! So, like I mentioned, uh, we are drinking today La Fête du Rosé from Côte de Provence. Um, representation matters, so I like to pick wines that, you know, are reflective of not only the book, but of our community and the diversity within it. So, for Black History Month, I also thought it'd be perfect to pick this wine. Two reasons. 
obviously I wanted to highlight a black founded wine and, you know, Valentine's Day goes with my theme. So a little bit about this wine. Founder and CEO Donnie Burston created this wine because there wasn't a rosé brand that spoke to diverse audiences. When you look at rosé commercials, it's all white girls getting white girl wasted. hundred percent. You're so right. I hadn't even thought of right? that. It's all these like Hampton-like scenes with the blonde girls and the white jeans and, you know, just having a clam bake or something. <laughs> like, it's very particular. You're it's, so right. It's a very, you know, particular marketing brand. So he he basically wanted to create a wine that showcased him and the people he knew and, and diversities. It also showcased men drinking rosé, not just, you know, white girl wasted women. <laughs> I love that. Yes. I love that image of black men drinking rosé. Yes. I'm obsessed with that right? image. Thank you for painting that in now my head, actually. You go to sleep and, and dream of that. I'm going to dream of that. <laughs> but he's amazing in and of himself. Um, He's from Baltimore, Maryland. He has an engineering, math, and IT background, but decided to pursue a career in the alcohol industry. Hard right, right there. Uh, He worked on the promotional side of a bunch of iconic brands in the U.S. and then joined um, Louis Vuitton, Moy Hennessy. So he was with the brand for 10 plus years and worked across iconic brands like Veuve Clicquot, Dom Perignon, uh, Moet, just so many great iconic brands, but then he decided, you know what, I'm going to go off on my own and see what there is. And it just so happened when he was at a film festival in France that he struck a conversation with an owner of a winery and started talking about, you know, what he wanted to do, what kind of wine he wanted to create. And they spoke about the growth of the rosé industry in America. And he explained his vision, making a multicultural lifestyle out of this rosé. Um, the man was intrigued, and after a few talks, some visits back and forth over the next six months, they agreed to work together. And in the summer of 2019, La Fête du Rosé was finally born. So uh, it's produced in collaboration with winemakers from the oldest vineyard in Saint-Tropez, and it was, which was established in 1340. And uh, in the domain and the vineyard span over 60 hectares overlooking the Mediterranean Sea. So this place is picturesque as fuck. The 1300s? Yes. It's incredible. So there's so much history. I mean, when you look at him and you're like, oh, it's a new rosé, but actually the vines and just like the estate have been there forever. So it it is really special and and amazing that he was able to partner with them in that way. That sounds to me like a man who knows and appreciates history. Yes, he does. (laughs) Love that. And then another thing I like, which I mention all the time, which people are probably sick of, but they're also into sustainable practices. They don't use pesticides. They're very much into giving back into the earth and protecting nature, as we all should be people. Mm-hmm. So if this rant doesn't help you, I don't know what won't. And this wine is made of a blend of 80% Grenache, uh, 6% Syrah, and 14% Mouvedre. Mouvedre. I love it. I'm like looking at you with an eye like, did I say that right? I'm just going to give you a half wink. Half right, half right. <laughs> You're killing it. <laughs> the French is getting better. <laughs> it is. It is. So like always, what we first do is we take a look at the wine, preferably over a white surface so we could really get a sense of the color. This wine is kind of a pale salmon in color, um, which is very typical of wines from Provence. They're all pretty much this kind of hue. So then we're going to sniff it. We're going to swirl it in our glass and, and sniff it and get all the notes from there. 
Um, I get a lot of red berries. Yeah. I get a bit of citrus. Maybe even like white flower, very small. Even like a little bit of lemongrass. Yeah. It's a very fresh nose. Very delicious. Yeah. And then we're going to taste it and swish it around our mouths. Let it coat it all and, and get a sense. So this is a dry wine, which I prefer. Same. Um, it is dry. It is very light. Um, I want to, let me. The acidity, I'd say, is like medium plus. Like it's not super. Like saliva isn't rushing down my mouth, but it's kind of there. It's kind of hanging out there. It's mm-hmm. like, you know. Definitely. In route to rush. 100%. And um, let's see. Let me... But yeah, I think a lot of the nose travels onto the palate too. Yeah. You get a lot of the tartness. Fresh berries. The fresh berries. Strawberry, raspberries. You get like, yeah, like some lemon and or, or lemon rind, almost like grapefruit, almost. There's like some complexity in there. Like it's not a one note kind of wine. Mm-mm. And I and um and the finish it, it lingers a lot. Like after you're done with the sip, it just kind of sits with you in your mouth for a little while. So that's nice too. It's a more interesting rosé than some that I've had yeah. for sure and and I appreciate that it's, you know, it's dry and you know, it's not sweet. It's mm-hmm. it is still refreshing yeah. as and I crush. like to say. <laughs> and crisp but it's it you know i feel like you can have it at any time and that's always a a benefit especially i think for our listeners Mm -hmm. because you want to be able to buy something that's versatile that you can take to a party but you can also have when it's warm out but you can also have with almost any any occasion Mm -hmm. right this just feels very kind of all-encompassing even though it's a rosé yeah it's very versatile like i could see us drinking this by the pool or Having it with tacos, like pork tacos, or, you know, taking it over to a friend's house, or just anything, really. It's very versatile. It's delicious. And um, it's also not at a bad price point. Uh, You could find it. I I know that it's at my local Target for $24.99. If you go to the website, you could see a list of where they have it all over the country. But so at $25, I think... Whispering Angel is around there, maybe a little more, some similar wines. Yeah. But I think I prefer this one. I really like it. I and let me ask you a question. More. I know that 6% is not a lot, but is is the reason why it feels like a little boozier because there's some Syrah in there? Is it Syrah typical be. in Rosé? Um, in that region, in Provence, it's very typical to find blends of Grenache, Syrah, uh, and Cinso with some Mouvedre, um, like this one is. And you get different uh, qualities from each of the grapes. I mean, Syrah generally gives the wine a bit more of structure. And I think that's kind of what you're seeing here. But also, I mean, each grape has its own properties and, you know, sugar levels. And the sugar is kind of what determines the, the alcohol level. So pretty much you find that uh, grapes that are grown in cooler climates have less sugar, which gets eaten by the yeast during fermentation to create alcohol. So those wines tend to be um, a bit less alcoholic, whereas uh, grapes grown in warmer climates tend to be a bit more boozier. They get a bit more um, of the sugar there. So that kind of dictates the alcohol levels in our wines you know not of course getting into fortified wines or the winemaking process but that's typical um kind of winemaking um 
you know, the grapes that you put in there kind of dictate what you get out of it. And Syrah is a very, very boozy friend of ours. Yeah. I mean, I have two glasses of Syrah and I'm a wreck. Yeah. Oh my God. I had an Australian Syrah once that fucked me up at my <sighs> friend's house. I, I just, I was, ugh. yeah, I was friends with the toilet that night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Me and Syrah are not great friends. I'll admit we're not great friends. If we ever do a book we both hate, we'll pair it with Syrah. <laughs> You'll get a lot out of us for those episodes. (laughs) Probably more personal anecdotes that you know what to do with. Yeah, too many. Uh, This wine clocks in at 12.5% alcohol. So it's pretty standard for for alcohol. But um, no, there is complexity. I can see what you're saying. It just feels that way. It doesn't feel like water in your mouth. It feels like you're, you're getting a little something in there. But yeah, no, the grape choice was great. I think... It has a nice complexity for a rosé. People think rosé is just like water sometimes. Right. They don't really give it the attention it deserves. Sweet water. Yeah, exactly. And um, and that's, uh, Donay here is dispelling that with, yeah. with his rosé. It's very pale, isn't it? Yeah, super pale. All the wines from that region are, or the, not all the wines, the rosés are yeah. usually pale like that for the most part. It's delicious. Yeah. I'm I'm very much enjoying it. I'm yes, really glad that you chose this. For sure. So this was a good one. And then I have another rosé coming up for our next book, which you'll have to check our Instagram, of course, to figure out. But it'll be fun, I think, to compare and contrast the rosés. Yeah. And, and not only to compare and contrast the rosés, but to compare and contrast the books, because yes. there is a little, a little bit of a tie and we're, we're, we'll dive into it in the next episode. But I think that it's it's kind of nice to be able to do that. To, yeah. To jump from one book or from one wine to another and create that comparison from episode to episode. And, and we're, we're able to do that this month. Yeah, I think so. And and I mean, I just finished next book today and it, it gave it gave me a little heebie jeebies. So and that, I and I just started it. If that's any note for you guys. I mean, it is for sure. The heebie-jeebies is that you're more ahead <laughs> than I am. That's the heebie-jeebies That's you for read me. More. I, yes, yeah. This is this would be my eighth book of of twenty twenty two. Yeah, this is my fourth. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so there okay, you go. Okay. So, guys. I, there so you, go. you can't judge me. You can't judge me. Okay. That's fair. That's fair. That's fair. Oh, but like always, thank you guys. So much for listening. We we love you. We love the conversation that we get from you guys online. So please connect with us on Instagram at Pouring Over Pages Podcast. Sign up for our newsletter. Check out our Etsy shop. Um, and if you really love this podcast, subscribe to it. Follow it, like it. I don't know what all the apps do. So just do whatever's positive. Five stars. In five those stars. Apps. Five stars. And. Yeah, till uh, till next time. Till next time. Yeah. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers.